long before Timothy and these two women had received Christ as their personal Savior, they were God-fearers of the Old Testament, and they had taught Timothy in the Scriptures. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we begin a new study in the book of 2 Timothy. If you are with us in our study of 1 Timothy, you already know a little about the background of this letter from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith and pastor to Lystra, Timothy. But since some time has elapsed since the last study, let's join Dr. Brogy now as he gives us a little review on the background of Paul, Timothy, and this particular epistle. You know, we live in a day where there are many churches in America that call themselves Christian, but they would really not be recognized by any first century believer. Through the centuries, many unbiblical traditions have entered into the church as it relates to government, leadership, worship, and how we're to function. And unfortunately, many of those man-made traditions have usurped the authority of the Word of God. The seven famous last words of the church are, we have always done it this way. And tradition has supplanted truth. And so this morning, I want to continue in a series that I began some months ago on the pastoral epistles, recognizing the state of the church today. What Paul says in these three pastoral epistles is critical for the people of God to hear. We're studying them in the chronological order in which they're given. First Timothy was penned, then Titus, and then Paul's second letter to Timothy. Now, Second Timothy is a very moving book because it's the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul just before his beheading in Rome. I want you to imagine this morning this man penning this letter to Timothy from a dirty, dark, dank prison cell in which he communicates to him his heart and pours out to him an exhortation to remain faithful to the end. I've imagined myself sitting next to Timothy as he read this letter and as he heard this charge from Paul. And as I've read it in that light, I'm impressed by its timeliness and its timelessness for the church today. Because Paul preaches not just to Timothy, but he looks down the corridors of time to what he terms in this letter, the last days. He looks at us who live before those approaching days when Christ will come again. A day like Timothy, that was filled with moral and theological confusion, heretics that were widespread, and all the more true in the day in which we live. Now, there are two words that crystallize for me this letter throughout. There are two monosyllables in the Greek, just four letters, su-der, but you. But you, in some of your translations, but as for you. Four times found in this letter. And Paul wants Timothy to recognize that as a pastor, he was to be different. Not for difference sake, but for Christ's sake. That he was not to yield to human pressure. He was not to yield to the spirit of the world. world that he was to stand firm in the truth and the righteousness to which God calls his people. And that's the kind of courage that spineless Christianity today so desperately needs. So let's get started this morning. Your note-taking outline there in the back of your bulletin, you can see I have three objectives for us. First, by way of introduction, I want us to understand how 2 Timothy fits into the canon of Scripture. 
Then secondly, I want us to think about how 2 Timothy fits together as a letter. And then finally, I want to crack the door in this epistle by examining the very first seven verses to the letter. So let's begin by thinking about how 2 Timothy fits in the Bible. Whenever you study any book in the Bible, it's helpful to see it in relation to other biblical writings. So let's think about how 2 Timothy fits into the canon of Scripture. Of course, God's book is divided into two major sections, the Old and New Testaments. The Old Old Testament is 39 books long, and it deals with two great themes, man's need for salvation from his sin and God's role to use the Jewish people to bring about the promised Messiah. And so the Old Testament takes us through Malachi to about 400 years before the coming of the Christ. The New Testament comprises 27 books, and it too also has two critical major themes. One, how salvation was met, the promised salvation of the Old Testament through Christ. And then secondly, how the Jew and the Gentile together have been brought into one entity, a living organism, an organization known as the church. Now, most of Christ's life is captured in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the rest of the New Testament primarily focuses on the church. Luke traces the very first 30 years of church history in the Acts of the Apostle. And then John traces the consummation of the church in the Revelation. And between Acts and in Revelation, you have Romans through Jude, letters giving us instruction in dealing with problems that Christians in every age have faced. Of these men who wrote them, Peter, James, John, Jude, Paul was the most prolific in that he wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And of course, 2 Timothy falls into the pastoral epistles. They teach us how to function together. Paul is putting some steel into this pastor's spine on how to stay faithful to the gospel. And really, if any local church would just heed the instruction of this letter alone, they would be kept from heresy and they would achieve the purpose for which God has called them. So that's how 2 Timothy fits into the Bible. But let's also talk about how 2 Timothy fits together. Why is Paul writing this letter to Timothy, and how does the book piece together? Well, it's always helpful to get the big picture of any book, and then the various details will take on far much more meaning. So let's try to get an overview that we might understand some of Paul's objectives in writing to Timothy. Now, if you've not read through the letter lately, I want to encourage you to do so. I've already encouraged them, I think at least in the first service this morning, to uh, in all uh, these days in front of us, when we study 2 Timothy, to read it every single day. Read the book of 2 Timothy every day. Some of you did that for Titus. Now, we're going to be in 2 Timothy for probably three months, maybe longer. But I want to encourage you to read it. By the time you are done, you will know 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy will be a part of your lifestyle, and God will use it in a profound way to change you. Now, it doesn't take long to read through, only about 12 to 15 minutes. And if you read it through three or four times, I think you'll discover that there's one prominent theme that runs all the way through it, and it is the theme dealing with the gospel. Paul is preoccupied in writing to Timothy about the gospel. His work as an apostle is virtually finished. For over 30 years, he has faithfully preached the good news, planted churches, defended the truth, and consolidated the work so he can come to the end of his life and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. The only thing left for Paul 
is that reward, the crown of righteousness, which God promised to give to him and to every Christian who loves his appearing. Currently, he's a prisoner, but he's about to become a martyr. And if the tradition is correct, and there is good evidence that it is, Paul was condemned to death and then beheaded. The epistle, I will remind you, was written during the height of the Neronian persecutions. In fact, Eusebius, who was a reliable first century historian, tells us that Peter and Paul were martyred on the same day. In fact, on the same occasion, Paul by beheading and Peter by crucifixion upside down. So Paul writes to Timothy under the shadow of his own execution concerning the gospel for which he had given everything of his last 30 years to. Now the question of the day was what would happen to the gospel after the apostle is dead and gone. Nero was bent on destroying Christianity from without and heretics had entered into the church and were keen on wrecking the church from within. And so who would battle for truth after Paul is gone? That was the question that dominated his mind as he wrote from this Roman dungeon. Well, from a divine point of view, Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. But from a human point of view, God uses courageous men to stand for the truth. And so Paul reminds Timothy of the gospel to which he had been entrusted, to which he was to preach and to defend and to keep from all falsehood. And so as you read and reread this book, you're going to see that it divides into four major parts. In chapter 1, we're called to guard the gospel. The key verse summarizing that is 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. Here a reference to the gospel. The treasure which has been entrusted to you. In chapter 2, Timothy and all Christians alike are called to suffer for the gospel. And the key verse summarizing that would be 2 Timothy 2, 3, 8, and 9. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. In chapter 3, the focus is continue in the gospel or abide in the gospel, live for the gospel. 2 Timothy 3, 13 and 14. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things which you have heard, learned, and become convinced of. And finally, chapter 4, the focus is on preaching the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And the church of the 21st century urgently needs to heed the message of this second letter. We need a new generation of Timothys, Christians who will guard the gospel, who are willing to suffer for the gospel, who will live for the gospel, and who will preach it without trimming it in its uncorrupted and pure form. And so that's how the book of 2 Timothy divides. Guard the gospel, chapter 1. Suffer for the gospel, chapter 2. Continue in the gospel, chapter 3. 
preach the gospel, chapter 4. Or to say it differently, the emphasis of the first chapter is to be unashamed. Paul reminds Timothy that he was not ashamed of Christ and how Onesiphorus was not ashamed of Christ. Even so, Timothy, you never be ashamed of Christ. The focus of chapter 2 is to be strong. And to drive home the charge to be strong in the service of Christ, Paul uses seven figures of speech. I have them all circled in chapter 2. He mentions a son, a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a workman, a vessel, and a bondservant. And then the theme of chapter 3 is to be ready. He wants him to be ready for apostasy because God predicted it would come. He wanted him to be ready for persecution because God promised that that would come too. And then finally, in chapter 4, the subject is to be outspoken. Preach the word, Timothy, because a time will come, and may I say that day has arrived when people will not want to hear it. But not only preach it in the church, preach it outside the church because you are to do the work of an evangelist. So that's how 2 Timothy fits into the Bible and that's how 2 Timothy fits together. Now with that introduction, let's crack the door on the first seven verses of this great epistle. In the opening paragraph, we're introduced to two people, Paul, the apostle and author of the letter, and Timothy, the recipient. And in each case, we are told how each man came to be what he was. I've entitled the sermon, The Making of a Godly Man. And I want you to pay close attention this morning because these verses provide an incredible amount of light of how in the providence and sovereignty of God, he fashions a man or a woman to be the person that he's called them to be. So let's first consider this morning Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now I learned three things about Paul in the opening verse. First, Paul was an apostle. Look, if you will, at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now, don't read over those words too fast and miss their meaning. An apostle, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. First, Paul claimed the very title that Jesus had given to the twelve in Luke chapter 6. He referred to those twelve as apostles. Out of the seventy that closely accompanied our Lord, Jesus chose twelve to be apostles. And in the New Testament, it's given to those twelve, to the apostle Paul, and to two others. And in this verse, Paul refers to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he uses the word apostolos. It's a Greek word that literally means a sent one. See, apostles were chosen and sent by Jesus Christ to do his work. And of course, the highest office ever in the history of the church has been the office of apostle. An apostle, in essence, was like a universal elder. He would travel anywhere and speak with the authority given to them by Christ. It means a sent one, and it indicates that Christ sent them on a mission to represent him, to teach and to speak and to preach in his name, so that Jesus could say, he who listens to, to me, or he who listens to you listens to me, and he who receives you receives me. Why? Because your authority is my authority. I authorize you to teach in my name. And to this select group, the Apostle Paul was added. Indeed, he was rightly called an apostle because Jesus said in his Damascus Road experience, I send you. Ego apostello, literally, I apostle you. 
And since this was a foundational office, no one can fill it today. Because among other things, there's no one today who can see the risen Lord. And so there is no such thing, as some claim, as apostolic succession. For to be in this office, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have had an audible conversation with him and to have been hand-selected by him. And if he had chosen you, you would know it. But not only would you know it, others would know it. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he defends his own apostleship, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. These are unique traits that characterize an apostle. If everyone could do these things, then it would be a meaningless argument and polemic for his own apostleship. Such signs do not exist today as through men. Why? Because there is no need for God to authenticate his message through a messenger because the message is finished. The Bible is complete. God is still not inspiring men to speak, thus saith the Lord, as he did with the writers of the New Testament. Unlike my Mormon friends think, there is no 67th book of the Bible. The canon of Holy Scripture is complete. And as we studied on Wednesday night, those who claim to be apostles today do not have the signs and marks that would make them and call them to be a true apostle. As you study the Acts, for instance, people were sometimes healed just by encountering one of the apostles' shadows. On other occasions, just by touching a handkerchief or one of their aprons. They even raised people from the dead. They did miracles that no one has done in 21 centuries. And so Paul, in humility, when he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's not bragging. He's just referring to the authority that God has given him. And it's not boastful for you to assert the gifts that God has given you as long as you recognize that they're God-given, they're not self-generated, and they are to function properly for his honor and not yours. So Paul, Paul, first, is an apostle chosen and sent by the risen Lord. Second, I learned from verse 1 that Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Again, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul had authority from Christ. He was handpicked by Christ. He was authorized to teach and preach in the name of Christ. So Paul can say that his appointment did not come from the church, it didn't come from any man. It didn't come from any group of men. It came by the will of God. As he said in his first letter, by the commandment of God. Incidentally, this is one of the answers to the church at Rome who still teaches that the Roman church is over the Bible. When the Catholic church asks the question, who wrote the Bible? They answer, members of the church. And since members of the church wrote the Bible, they say that they were speaking with the authority of the church. And therefore, whenever the church speaks even today, they speak with the same authority and therefore are over the Bible. And the Protestant reformers rightly argued from the truth found within Scripture itself, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our final authority. On the contrary, Paul is not speaking in the name of the church. He is speaking to the church in the name of Jesus Christ. So the church is under the Bible. It's the recipient of these apostle apostolic letters and not ultimately the author of it. Now, Paul is an apostle not by the will of a church. 
church, but by the will of God. His authority is God-given. It's not given by men. Third, we recognize not only is he an apostle, an apostle by God's will, but Paul was an apostle according to the promise of life. Again, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. The object of Paul's apostleship, the reason God chose him to be an apostle, concerns or was according to the promise of life found in Christ. He had been chosen and commissioned by Christ, first to formulate the gospel in ink, and then to communicate the gospel with his voice. And the gospel, euangelion, the word simply means good news. The gospel is good news for dying sinners in that it is the promise of life, I mean real life, in Christ Jesus. Now this is significant that Paul says this in the opening verse, because where is Paul? He's in a dirty, dark, dingy prison facing death. Paul is looking death straight in the eyes. And yet with all authority, he speaks of the promise of life. Why? Because he knows that real life is not simply physical, but it's spiritual. It's eternal to be experienced now and ultimately intensified and experienced to the fullest extent in heaven. The gospel declares that there is life in Jesus Christ, who not only claimed to be the life himself, for he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, we're going to study next time that through his cross, by his blood, he abolished death. But because Christ is life, because that is the message of the gospel, we not simply offer life, we give a promise of life. Because the Bible dogmatically says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. In fact, the whole Bible is a promise of life with its very first mention in the book of Genesis chapter 3 where we're introduced to the tree of life and the very last chapter of the Bible in the Revelation when we once again will eat from the tree of life. We studied in Titus chapter 1 that eternal life is a gift given by God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. And so as we're going to study next time in verse 10, this promise is being made today through the preaching of the gospel. I want to ask you this morning, are you looking for life? I mean real life. I'm not talking about existence. A lot of people, not a lot of people, all people have existence, but not all people have life. Jesus Christ did not come to promise you existence. You will always exist. From the moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, God breathed into you the breath of life and you became a living soul. He made you to exist forever. And so Solomon can say, God wrote eternity into our hearts. Existence is endless. It's timeless. It's dateless. It's measureless. Your soul will go on living somewhere long after the sun, moon, and stars have been forever extinguished. But what you need is real life, eternal life. And some of us here this morning, we're empty on the inside. We are empty because of our sin and our rebellion against God. We're separated from the living God. And we've tried to fill up a void with relationships, with money, with things. 
but only the Lord Christ can come and give you life and give it to you more abundantly. So here's the Apostle Paul preaching the promise of life that Jesus said comes when you are born again. So this then is the author who under the inspiration of the Spirit of God calls himself an apostle, an apostle by the will of God, and an apostle who's been called of God to proclaim the gospel which promises new life in Christ. But in addition to Paul the apostle, I also want us to consider this morning Timothy, Paul's beloved child. Let's read verses 2 through 7. Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline." Now notice here in verse 2, Paul calls Timothy, my beloved son. Or if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, it gives you the literal rendering in the Greek, literally, my beloved child. He uses very similar words when he writes to Timothy in his first letter. He says to Timothy, my true child and the faith. Now let's think for just a few, few moments about Timothy to whom Paul writes. We know quite a bit about Timothy from the rest of Scripture. In fact, you can really divide his life into his youth, his conversion, and his commissioning. And we first learn of Timothy in the Bible in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. Right at the start of the second missionary journey, we are told, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. His home was in Lystra, one of the four Galatian cities that Paul visited on both his first and second missionary journeys. And Timothy, we learn in this verse, was a product of a mixed marriage in that his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jewish. Now, we learn from verse 5 of our text that her name was Eunice, and his, her gram, his grandmother's name was Lois. And they were both godly women said to be of a sincere faith. Long before Timothy and these two women had received Christ as their personal Savior, they were God-fearers of the Old Testament, and they had taught Timothy in the Scriptures so that Paul could say of Timothy in the third chapter, from your childhood you have known the sacred writing. How did he know it? from his Jewish grandmother and his Jewish mother who taught him. I like the way John Calvin describes Timothy's upbringing when he writes in his commentary, Timothy sucked in godliness along with his mother's milk. <laughs> and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. His father was a Greek, and by Paul's form of statement, an unbeliever, but his mother Eunice here had become a Christian, a completed Jew. And so by the time Paul visits them, now on his second missionary journey, a few years later, Acts 16.1 describes Timothy, or her as a, uh, as a believer, and Timothy as a disciple. So Timothy, 
Eunice, and Lois are all believers. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will continue his introductory look at Timothy as we continue our study in the book of 2 Timothy. If you'd like a copy of this message entitled, The Making of a Man of God, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program 2TM1. And when you contact us, would you consider helping this teaching ministry? Search the Scriptures is heard over a number of radio stations along the East Coast of the United States and around the world on the Internet, but we want to spread the good news of Jesus Christ even further. If you can help with a one-time gift or by becoming a Foundation Partner, call us at 877-787-7478 or drop us a note at Search the Scriptures, P.O. Box 600, Seabrook, South Carolina, 29940. Thank you for your consideration and join us again tomorrow when we find out more about Timothy and search the scriptures.